0: Welcome to the Being Human UTU Podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UTU Podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas.
1: And welcome to the Being Human UTU podcast. Today, we're very happy to be joined by Scott Hartley, the author of The Fuzzy and the Techie, a book that has really been a point of discussion on the campus of Dixie State University recently. He joins us and is going to answer some of our questions. And we're going to kick right off, Scott, by asking you, what was the genesis of this book? Um, Why did you decide to write it?
2: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Randy. Um, this is great. Uh, I was at Dixie State a couple weeks back and had a chance to meet uh, a lot of uh, folks on, on campus, you know, making the transition into uh, Utah Tech, which is very exciting. Um, so to take you guys back a few years, um, you know, my, my background really is kind of growing up in Silicon Valley, um, being sort of uh, early at companies like Google and Facebook, yet being a poli-sci major, I was a political science and philosophy guy. And kind of answering these perennial questions of what is it that you possibly do at a company like Google, I thought that only engineers worked at Google. And um, sort of being subject to this set of interrogation by family and friends, uh, you know, continually, um, I, I was always kind of defending and saying, you know, actually, there there, there are 50%, 60% of all folks at these companies that are steeped in problem solving that are rooted in disciplines like philosophy and, and psychology and anthropology and sociology that are making real contributions to these companies um, and, and not sort of always in titles that are the same as your degree title, right? And so I think the backdrop um, was was a bit um, autobiographical. And then in about 2011, um, I joined a venture capital fund on Sand Hill Road, um, which is the kind of the... The eye of the storm of kind of future of, of, of technology, and I heard you know this perennial sort of drumbeat uh, from folks like Mark Andreessen, who is the founder of Netscape, folks like Vinod Khosla, who is the founder of Sun Microsystems, um, you know both of whom are deeply technical, but both of whom would say things like the liberal arts are useless, um, none of those skills like philosophy have any place in the job market. And you know, I sort of looked around Silicon Valley and said, you know, wait a minute. Um, Chris Dixon, who's one of the premier investors at Andreessen Horowitz, who works for Mark, uh, is a is a philosopher. You know, Stewart Butterfield, the founder of Slack Technologies, has two degrees in philosophy. You know, one of the best investors of all time, Peter Thiel, uh, has a degree in philosophy and law. You know, and just sort of going down the list of a lot of people that I saw. Um, making waves in Silicon Valley, running some of the largest companies, making some of the smartest decisions, solving some of the biggest problems, were people that, you know, nothing against uh, pure technologists and and studying, you know, just only STEM subjects. But really, the the best problem solvers had two sides of the coin. They had both STEM and they had um, a deep rooting in the humanities and ability to kind of look inward at themselves and the problems around us. And so I think the backdrop was really autobiographical as far as um, the narratives that I, were, I was hearing about the, the primacy of STEM and STEM being the ticket to the future, the antidote to irrelevance in the future economy and sort of taking a step back. Um, and so, so, so really that was the backdrop of the book, um, the fuzzy and the techie. Um, the terms actually come from uh, Stanford university back in the 1970s. There were these lighthearted, Monikers on campus of uh, fuzzies being folks that studied the humanities and the social sciences and techies being those who studied, you know, the deep sciences or or computer science. And not so much adversarial, but really sort of about how do you bring together both the fuzzy and the techie, Um, you know, and and taking you guys back to to something before this, too. I mean, the this debate is not uh, is not new. I think the terminology has become. More modern in the in the way that we talk about it, we talk about things like artificial intelligence and ethics. We talk about code and context, um, you know, data, uh, big data, and sort of uh, uh, sort of objectivity of data. But really, when you go back to um, these debates that have been going for a long time, back to, for example, 1959, uh, Charles Percy Snow uh, delivered a famous lecture at Cambridge called the Two Cultures lecture, where he basically lamented this exact same phenomenon of one side of campus was sciences, the other side of campus was humanities, the the fact that we needed to get people from either side to spend time on the other side of campus. Um, So this perennial debate that's kind of been going on about the relevance of the humanities, the relevance of, quote unquote, you know, liberal arts, which I think is widely misunderstood to be the humanities when in fact the liberal arts Artis liberalis are what frees the mind, and what frees the mind is exposure to all subjects, right? So the classical liberal arts included mathematics, biology, physics, literature, history, philosophy, logic, right? Those were all the liberal arts. So when we talk about sort of like throwing away the liberal arts, we're really talking about throwing away holistic education and sort of the approach of pulling and tugging on the mind in 10 different ways to allow a student to have a toolbox of opportunities to problem solve and think critically about the world around them. And so um, that's, that's a little bit of the backdrop of why I wrote the book and wanting to push back against this narrative that the antidote to irrelevance in the future is purely learning to code because it's such a myopic perspective. One of the very first things to probably be eroded by machine learning and artificial tech technology will be writing computer code, right? Something that's heavily structural, heavily rote, routine, repetitive. Those are the very things that will be automated. And so this great deep irony of the focus exclusively on STEM potentially, you know, being the thing that is the most quickly eroded and the deeper thing of being an empathetic, holistic problem solver with, many things in your toolbox actually being the thing that keeps you most relevant and most human.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And and as you were were talking, um, you give a good example, but that's really one of the dilemmas that a lot of us in academia face is that that perception that you need to go to college, you need to get done quickly because it costs so much and you're investing so much time and effort. So let's just get right into what we're gonna specialize in. And this anti-general education sentiment, I think, is wrapped up in what you're, you're talking about. And I'm glad you link that to, you know, the liberal arts and, and that overall concept, because, you know, a lot of the stuff that you talk about in your book and certainly a lot of the stuff that you talked about on campus was that versatility that comes from a broader perspective. You know, I, f- I want my students to get out of here and get a job. I want my students to not incur very much debt. But at the same time. This broader picture that you're talking about, I think, is so important, and I, I think we can't reject that. Uh, you, you were giving some of the, the catchphrases. There was a legislator here in Utah there that used the degree to nowhere. Anything in the humanities is a degree to nowhere, and that's something that uh, that your book and the 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 stories that you're telling and the people that you're referencing is, is really challenging. So thank you for that. And and thank you for the time that you spent um, here. I know you talked to several groups and then you did a public lecture. We kept you pretty busy. So we really appreciate your time because we know how valuable it is.
2: Absolutely. It was, it was my pleasure. I'm still recovering uh, in my sleep and I've got my coffee here. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Hey Scott, Jim here. Um, thanks for coming. And so a lot of your your book talks about the value of collaboration. And you know I, when I think about a student's journey, just a, a human journey through education, it, it turns into, okay, it's a process of a discovery. And then we shuffle you into a major. We shuffle into where you're going specifically. And um, sometimes that can lend to siloing. And I, I noted in the conclusion of your book, um, you said that techies have driven many partnerships across the fuzzy techie divide and they can be highly effective bridge builders. Um, and you know I've seen as a, an unfortunate human characteristic is that people like to stay in their lanes, they like to be siloed. And so um, what do you see when, or have you seen instances of people siloing and, and not wanting to collaborate? Um, you know, I know there are a few instances that you noted in the book. Um, what are kind of the consequences and what are ways to sort of break through? Because as, from a student perspective, you know, when they feel like, okay, I can only interact with English majors. I can only interact with chemistry majors. That's not really what you're talking about or what a successful organization looks like.
2: Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, You know, when um, Randy, when you mentioned uh, the the sort of uh, like linearity of of education and sort of the, the, the fact that we want to get on this conveyor belt, it reminded me of um, this obsession that we seem to have as a, as a human species and have had for a long time. If you go back to the 1960s, uh, you know one of the popular cartoons, which we all know is the Jetsons. And you think about the Jetsons, it was this technological utopia of the future, which meant that uh, it was highly automated and very efficient, right? But it was very soulless. It was efficient because you had walking sidewalks, moving sidewalks, buttons that would, you know all you had to do is sit there and, and push a single button and then everything would happen. And I think that we have this sort of notion with education that we want this like Jetsons like experience of the moving sidewalk that kicks us off right into the perfect, you know, six figure salary and, and whatever it is, right? And, um, and the reality is that uh, the world is much more um, nonlinear and orthogonal. And sometimes it takes slowing down um, or, or moving sideways to really move forward. And so, in many ways, I think it's, um, changing students' perspectives around, around outcomes and, and, and helping show that um, the best way to, for example, and I, I, gave this, uh, I gave this anecdote while I was on campus, I had the chance to speak um, to a number of different colleges in India and a number of different um, high schools in India. And we had this one roundtable discussion with a number of engineers and somebody asked, how can I get better at the soft skills and with empathy? And somebody else as part of the roundtable, said, well, that's easy. You need to read books about empathy, as if there's a how-to guide, like a Tim Ferriss four-hour work week, the four-hour empathy week, right? Right, um, right? There must be a shortcut. There must be a George Jetson moving sidewalk that takes me to empathy very fast. And I need to get on that sidewalk as quickly as possible because I don't have time for this. And in fact, the way to learn empathy is to slow down. It's to sit down and read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy for 10 hours in a row on the couch and de- delve into the world of you know, uh, of, of, of of Russian uh, pastoral literature, right? And and so I think that there are these uh, linear approaches to problem solving, which you need for, you know, taking a, a problem set in math or, or econ. And then there are these very circuitous orthogonal paths to learning things like empathy, soft skills, collaboration, um, communication. Oftentimes it takes going in this very roundabout way, um, you know, much the same way that, uh, Central Park, you know, in, in in New York City, Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of Central Park, purposely designed the park to enjoy the park. Right, the park is not meant for efficiency. It's not meant to get from one side to the other as quickly as possible. It's meant to discover nature, and so it's meant to democratize this experience of beauty in nature to a city of urban dwellers that maybe didn't have the chance to get outside the city. And so every path is an unfurling of nature. It's not meant to be direct. It's meant to be enjoyed. And I think that's the sort of mentality or maybe a metaphor that you can bring to a student in a literature class. It's This is not about outcomes. This is not about finishing the problem set by this time at night. It's about enjoying the book. It's about enjoying the journey. It's about walking through that curved path of Central Park, not just getting to the other side of, of, the, of the city. And um so, you know, I think this is just sort of some interesting anecdotes or, or, or moments, but I, I think, you know, to the question that you posed, it's really about push and pull. And I think that we can put some of the onus on students to sort of recognize the, 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 the skills that they're developing and to be able to sort of think creatively about the application of those skills in the real world. But interestingly, this morning, I, I had a call with the former um, head of North America for Munich Re, which is a large reinsurer. And she said that um, she was running transformation for Munich Re. And the, the people that they went to hire um, for transformation, the, the major that made the most sense and had, had the biggest uh, efficacy in, in helping transition um, comp- uh, new companies into Munich Re were music majors. And she couldn't figure out why but she said it's music majors because they're um they're actually uh heavily structured thinkers they've learned how to read music they've learned how to navigate uh, this this kind of structured world of music but then they're also highly creative this sort of this interesting metaphor of not being pinned down but maybe being tethered to something r- routine but then having the flexibility of mind to sort of navigate through different frontiers And so interestingly, this is coming from somebody who ran North America for an insurance company saying that who they wanted to hire were music majors. And so I think there's a push and there's a pull. There's both a giving confidence to a music major to say, look, you may love playing the piano, you could become a concert pianist and that would be wonderful, but you could also do many other things with the skill set. Similar to somebody coming out of the military saying, I have no skills, and you say, well, you've managed 40 people on the field of battle. You're a leader. You have plenty of skills, right. Um, And giving people this sort of new lexicon of what their skill sets are and where they could apply. And then simultaneously, I think helping at the career center or with different employers like Munich Re to recognize that, you know, because they're an insurance company, they may naturally get applicants who are econ majors, business majors, finance majors, accounting majors, but actually who they want to acquire interest from and really bring into the companies are these really diverse backgrounds like music majors. And so I think it's sort of a, a push and a pull, I think, of giving students the confidence to approach these companies and then also helping educate companies about the you know, incredible skills that, that students might have. Um, because I, I disagree with uh, the local politician that they're a degree to nowhere. Actually, they're a degree to everywhere.
1: I like that. In your presentation here, you you brought up a really intriguing idea that I wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about um, from you. You talked about the world of work really consisting of a lot of gray areas and that What employers are looking for and the people who seem to be thriving in this world are those who have not just the the courage to go into that gray area and to perform in that gray area. But you also use the phrase they can actually take comfort and ambiguity. That is something that you think could really help people in the workforce. And so I kind of have a two-part question. You know, first of all, I guess, you know, could you tell us more about this gray area and the, the, the comfort and ambiguity? And then the second part, which is, you know, maybe more difficult, how do we, as college professors, what are some of the things that we can do to help our students to develop some of those skills that will serve them well?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the reference, um, so Stuart Butterfield, who's one of the founders of, of Slack, um, which as many, many listeners will know, is a communication platform for kind of asynchronous um, future of work communications, sort of an alternative to email. Um, you know, Stuart Butterfield started the company initially, it was a gaming company. Um, the gaming company wasn't going so well um, they happen to use an internal tool within the engineering team to coordinate um, which releases, which products to, to work on. And they said, you know, if the gaming company's not working, maybe we should pivot and just invest in this thing that's our internal communications platform, which became the basis of Slack. And if you look at a lot of the stories of early stage companies, um, you know, we, we call them pivots, but really pivots are uh, trying and, and sort of feeling out Feeling your way through the dark, feeling your way through the ambiguity of what a user might want, what a pr- what product market fit might be, and so if you look at the world of entrepreneurship, there's an incredible um, balance between uh, kind of a structured approach and then a deep comfort in ambiguity. So you're iterating through the dark, and what Stuart Butterfield uh, has said is that his two degrees in philosophy prepared him incredibly well to be an entrepreneur because what is philosophy but Feeling your way through the dark, iter- iterating your way toward some approximation of truth, right? When you have a debate about what it means to leave what it means to lead a, a good life, or what it means to be ethical, or any number of questions that you might pose in a philosophy 101 class, those are conversations that don't have right answers. Those are conversations that you pose the question. Uh, you, you try to pull insights, you try to, uh, you know, allow somebody to, to go through a structured way of thinking through what the outcome might be, but there's no prescriptive outcome. That's the right outcome. Right. And I think that very similar to entrepreneurship, this is a, this is something that, um, a student who goes through a course or a course of study like philosophy, who's learning to both, um, take deep references uh, to, to, to historical um, paradigms, to think through things in logical ways, but then to really sort of let their own uh, intellect unfurl and sort of come to some approximation of what they think the right answer to be, um, that's, that's really deeply parallel to the entrepreneurial world. And so it's no wonder that you look around some of these great uh, CEOs and they're people that can communicate effectively. They can see both sides of an argument They're, They're good at sort of understanding this dialectic of two approaches and how, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said about intelligence, intelligence is being able to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And I think so many of us get caught up in this is right, this is wrong, and they don't have the ability to function with these two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time, yet somebody who has sort of gone through a rigorous literature or philosophy background, seen the world from someone else's perspective, and can, in fact, see the world through two different sets of eyes. That's called empathy, but that's also called you know being a good leader, being a good manager, being able to communicate effectively with people on your team who you might disagree with. Um, all of those are skills that are deeply relevant to the business world. And so you know I think th- this idea that... Um, you know, the, the, world is, the world is a gray area. Um, and I think it only gets more pronounced as you rise through the ranks. Seeing your first job out of college might be in a rote routine set sort of tasks that your manager uh, provides for you. And you simply complete the tasks and go home at 5 p.m. But if you have any uh, interest in, in rising above that sort of menial entry level job, that job becomes progressively more and more gray area with more and more human interaction, more and more management, more and more personalities that you're dealing with more and more need for empathy and collaboration and communication. And these, it, it, it effectively becomes higher level soft skills, right. That are required to rise through the ranks beyond an entry level job. So if you want an entry level job that does rote routine work in um, accounting, that's great. You can major in accounting and go do that job um, and stay on the bottom rung of the ladder for as long as you want. But as, if you want to sort of run an accounting firm or do anything that's uh, maybe slightly more more progressive um, than that first job you have, you're really going to need a broader set of skills. And you're going to need more than just the business major, more than just the accounting degree. You're going to need to know these other skills that you know happen to come from a broad-based set of studies um, like the liberal arts provide. And so, you know, I think, I think how do we train students to have this perspective? I mean, one thing as professors, I think we can do is try to give a little less structure in some of the assignments that we provide and perhaps allow a little more grace and flexibility. You know, sometimes a, a design your own major or something that really puts the onus on the student to design a curriculum or to come up with, um, you know, I think that's one example. I think, I think also, uh, courses that require, uh, doing collaborative work together. Um, so for example, you know, maybe it's a course on journalism, but rather than just have an explicit course on journalism, can it actually be, let's release a publication. And to do that, we need to think holistically about what it means to release a publication. You know, it may mean that we need to come up with a name, uh, lay out a magazine, learn some design tools, um, find some advertising revenue. Like it may be 10 step process that, uh, you know, requires those students to go deep into their own set of uh, coordination within themselves. Not that it's an explicit where the professor says, you're this, you're this, you're this. Um, allow them to. The, the runway to um, structure that team, structure those sets of ideas. So I think those sorts of engaged forms of education, um, learning by doing, um, are, are really interesting because they they force you into this gray area, they force you into a collaborative environment, um, and they force you in some degree into the real world where assignments don't come in problem sets and they're not due by 5 p.m., right?
1: Wow, that's great. Those are some some great ideas. And as you were talking, I was thinking about my, my own discipline. I'm not a philosopher, but I teach literature. And often students express those very sentiments that you were talking about. This is different. This is different than my math class. There's, there's no right answer here. I have to negotiate in a world where multiple things could be acceptable. And, and I have to use a different set of skills like you're talking about. And just quickly, and I'll let Jim do his next question. You, I love the Fitzgerald quote that you use, but I could also say that if you want to look at that ability to think about and hold opinions about diametrically opposed ideas at the same time, just go read keats's ode on a grecian urn i mean that's what it's all about that's what that poem is all about that simultaneous life is only life as it approaches death which is such a big part of that poem so thanks for that response it it definitely uh definitely was giving me some some things to think about as far as my my assignments go
0: and i don't know if this is a a A good observation or not, I mean, it it almost seems like a strength to the humanities is is that the content is secondary to the critical thinking. And sometimes in other fields, it feels like the content is primary. And like you're talking about this, this idea that some of these things that are going to be automated are what those students are often memorizing. And, and, And so the real strength that we have is that, yeah, you could read Keats, you could read Fitzgerald, you could read Dostoevsky it doesn't necessarily matter the three that you read. It's the process of, of critically thinking through them versus, okay, well, you need to know this and this, and this, and this. And, um, so the strength of the humanities as you're noting is that, I mean, we, we can problem solve and be uh, a real support in, uh, in organization or in a, in a collaborative environment. Now, my question is, uh, is a general weakness for the humanities, which is salesmanship. <laughs> um, we're not always great at selling ourselves and, and, you know, you talk, you talk quite a bit about on the entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, my, I guess it's sort of a two part question is on the one hand, how do you cultivate that entrepreneurial spirit and someone like a, a typical sort of bookworm that says, well, I just kind of want to read a book and, and write a paper, but don't ask me to lead a, a workshop. Um, and then also the type of student that honestly doesn't want to necessarily, that wants to enter in a workforce and be sort of a worker and not necessarily a, I, that's not a, a good word, a leader, but someone who doesn't want to be a manager, they, they want to enter into sort of an entry level. Like how do how do you cultivate, cultivate that confidence in someone who wants to be an entrepreneur and how do you Sort of support the person who likes to be behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, I love that framing of of like content led or um, sort of like critical thinking led. And I think in some in some sense, I mean, maybe the you know, and I think it's true of the sciences as well, right? The sciences are. you know you're learning a process of the scientific method you're learning a process of asking a hypothesis looking for constructive data to validate or invalidate a hypothesis and then drawing a conclusion right you're you're learning to sort of follow some routines that lead to structured thinking the same way that a lawyer might have a different form of structured thinking a philosopher might have a different form of structured thinking so i think within all disciplines there is an order of operations or a way that you might go about problem solving that's independent from the content of that major, right? And so uh, a physicist uh, may never use actual physics. I know, you know, many physicists who are technologists now, they do nothing related to what they might have done their PhD in, in physics, but what informs what they do today is this process of interrogation, this rigor around the scientific method or looking for data and in particular ways um, is similar to how a humanities student might interrogate a set of ideas by being a skeptic, by um, looking for counterarguments. arguments, um, you know, and so I think that's a really interesting nuance that you raise that we often debate the merits of um, the content. And the content, of course, is relevant if you're going into a job heavily around that, that content. You could, you know, study literature and become a literature professor. You could study physics and become a physicist. But independent of the content beneath the surface are a series of structured thinking, a, a way of approaching problems that are uniformly and across all disciplines useful um, as you enter sort of the gray area of of how do you um, work work in the real world. And there's a paradigm in, in the book um, toward the end of the book where I talk about these four different types of uh Problems where you have simple, complex, uh, simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic situations. You know, chaotic is difficult because you don't know which way uh, is up or down. Maybe something like the, the field of battle. Um, complex is something like the rainforest where it's it's heavily interdependent. There's a million interdependencies, and it's very very hard to sort of see what causes what. Com- uh, complicated is sort of more rote uh, set of processes. You know, and simple are things where you can apply basic heuristics of how you would problem solve. And I think, uh, you know, any form of critical thinking, any form of uh, that 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 way of approaching and distilling problems allows you to take a complex idea or a complex work environment and turn it into a complicated work environment, right? So something that seems... Um, like pattern based, you're able to distill patterns into facts and you're able to sort of take something from a complex state down to a complicated state where you can't really figure out what are the interdependencies, you make certain assumptions and you're able to structure your thinking and solve a problem. That to me is critical thinking, is taking something that is complex and moving into complicated and maybe from complicated to simple through heuristics of things that you're repeatedly doing over and over and so i think you know to 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 that to that thinking um you know how do we how do we sort of instill some of those characteristics in in our students you know i think that as you noted it's it's really about sort of breaking apart the the content from the from from the process
0: and it's tough because um i mean sometimes i've seen in my experience that that complication isn't always welcome, you know, sort of like a, let's just get the simple answer and let's get the deadline. And, and it sometimes involves that yeah. humanities person that says, um, no, like let's open it up again. Let's rewrite it. Um, and, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's yeah. not always welcome, but we need to push ourselves and say, no, like the, this is our, our viewpoint is, is, is valid and important.
2: Yeah. And to, your, and to your second question, I think, um, around sales and around sort of like entering the job market, um, there's a really interesting um, archetype that is not from my book, but it's from a book by um, a woman named Kim Scott. She's the author of a book called Radical Candor. And she talks about the, the sort of duality of uh, superstars and rock stars within any given team. And you might say, oh, those sound like the same thing. Um, what, what she delineates are that superstars um, want to get to sort of 60 percent mastery and then they want to move on. They're basically your in-house entrepreneurs. They want to get to some level of doing pretty well, and then they want to move on. They want to move on. What's next? What's the next thing I get to do? Your rock stars are the bedrock of your team. They're the people that want to get to a high level of confidence and a high level of sophistication around something that they're really good at. They want to master it. They don't want to move on after 60% mastery. They want to get to 99% and have the confidence that they know their subject, they're highly uh, respected, confident. Um, and so they want more control, right? And so there's, there's a, a more controlling, uh, personality type. That's maybe the, the rock star. And there's a sort of higher, um, openness to ambiguity. That's the superstar that says, Hey, I got pretty good at this. Now I'm bored. I want to do something else. Right. And so within any given team, if you have too many rock stars, there's no innovation. Everybody's doing the same thing over and over and it's stale. If you're on a team where there's too many superstars, there's way too much chaos or stochasm. There's nobody actually fulfilling the job of the, of the role that needs to get done. And so really, it's about having a balance between rock stars and superstars. And I, I imagine whether it's a team at Google or an academic department at Dixie State, there is the same duality at play of people that are heavily into the routine of what they've done for 20 years and there's other people that say, let's stir the pot. Let's change it up. Let's do something new. And you need a balance. If you had too many of either of those, you really sort of get into a place of no innovation or a place of way too much chaos. And so, you know, perhaps for, you know, academic deans and, and leadership um, folks, and whether it's in academia or in business, it's sort of almost taking inventory of who within your staff are in which archetype. And saying, hey, you know, we have a little bit of an overhang of way too many crazy creative types in this department, uh, which is great, but it's leading to too much uh, ambiguity and, and, and sort of change. How do we sort of balance them and sprinkle them like fairy dust across a different set of, uh, of, of of groups so that we're really driving a little bit of innovation, but we're also kind of getting the things done that, that maybe are required of that team? You know, and this would be the case on any team um, in, a, in a technology company. And I think the same metaphor could be applied to a lot of different concepts. So, for example, you want uh, to sprinkle in academic diversity into a given team, right? So at a, at a company like Google, you might have a data science team where you'd say, OK, well, everybody on the data science team should be, you know, a Ph.D. economist or they should be somebody rooted in uh, you know, bioinformatics or something data science related. And in fact, maybe 70% of the team should have that skill set because that's what the team needs to do. But 30% of them should be sociologists, anthropologists, people that are thinking with completely different vectors of inquisition through the data, through the assumptions, through the outcomes, where you're getting this sort of plurality of thought where you're able to tug on those assumptions in different ways. And that's the same concept of sort of the rock star and superstar, where you need some forms of diversity within each team to really make it the most effective as it can be. Um, you know, and so I think for students that um, are uh, interested in, as you said, more roles that are, 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 are within more control with less ambiguity, you know, those are great roles. And those, those are roles that every single company has. And so whether you're a rock star or a superstar, you don't need to think, Oh gosh, I should be the other one. It's fine to be whatever you are. And there's many people that uh, like that form of control or like that form of, um, of excitement of the new, new thing. And, um, the truth is that all teams need both people on those teams.
0: You're just describing. You're validating why I do group projects all the time. Because even though they can be horrible, <laughs> they can be a disaster. It's a process of discovery for a lot of those students to be able to figure out whether they're going to be that superstar or their rock star. Um, and sometimes you do get too many superstars or too many rock stars, and then it ends up being a disaster. But but at least maybe the you know it ended in the semester and they figured it out. Um, so the, yeah, the, the, I mean, thank you because it, that is that's a different level of certain people want to be those mastery contributors and they don't want to be the, the idea person. They want to be the one that implements the idea.
1: I wanted to bring up uh, (laughs) something else that you mentioned while you were here. You mentioned um, Jennifer Roberts, the Harvard professor who has her students, the art professor who has her students look at a painting for three hours and see what they can see When they stop and go beyond just this cursory glance or even an extended glance, you know, if we were to go to a museum and look at a a painting that we liked or a painting that we thought was important, we might spend five minutes in front of it as opposed to just uh, going by it. But she has her students spend three hours in front of, of of a painting. And you suggest that that way of thinking and that way of slowing down can also be valuable to students and people in the workforce
2: yeah it's it's an interesting concept and i think it's it's not so much you know when you hear her talk about her rationale for the three hours it's not as if you need to actually sit in front of a piece of art for three hours it's the egregiousness it's the audacity of suggesting this it's something so audacious that a student says oh my god you you got to be kidding me! This is impossible, right? It's something that um, takes somebody beyond the realm of possibility to uh, realize their own potential. And I think the same could be true of you know somebody running a marathon. The same could be true of any number of things that push you beyond a boundary that you don't think is possible. And I think it's an interesting um, academic approach to pushing somebody beyond a boundary that they think is impossible. And therefore changing their perspective, right? And so it could be anything within your domain that seems audacious. I mean, for me, one of the most profound courses that I took in my undergrad studies was a Dostoevsky class I took with a professor named Joseph Frank. Um, and Joseph Frank was a longtime uh, student of Dostoevsky, you know, at Princeton and at Stanford, and he taught the same course for 30, 40 years. And the course that I took was uh, was was six people, all of whom were basically Russian literature PhD students, except for me. <laughs> and the audacious thing in that cl- class was that we read every book that he wrote one week at a time. And so Brothers K was one week. Uh, the Idiot was one week. Uh, Crime and Punishment was one week. Notes from the Underground was one week, right? And so each week uh, seemed to kind of beg the impossible, but by going through this experience and realizing um you know what could be what could be done and the level of depth and inquisition we could have into this one author really sort of expanded my horizon on the depth of how how much i could appreciate an author how deeply i could go into a work so i think that that was an experience for me similar to you know standing in front of a painting for three hours it's so audacious that it just forces you to grapple with material in a slightly different way and so I think as academics and as um, as educators, we can think about our own discipline and say, what is the most audacious thing that I could make my student do? It's not necessarily about it being hard or being long or being, you know, uh, unduly painful, um, but it's maybe how can I force them to change a perspective that they wouldn't have otherwise had? Um, you know, and, and, and I have a number of those experiences in sort of my my academic, um, career where maybe, you know, maybe in a sense you give a student the choice and you say, I'm going to give you a two pronged path. One is to be a normal student. You can be the bedrock student. You can do the normal work and you can earn your way to an A or an A minus, or you can take the audacious path with my class. And you can, if you complete this audacious task, you will get an A plus, right? And the audacious task is audacious. It's, it's a 50-page paper. It's going deeper than they ever thought was possible. And it's something that if they come out the other side and they earn that degree, they earn that, that grade, they're going to think, my God, I pushed myself beyond my limits and I completed the marathon. I did the impossible. I got through the other side. And I think that is something that teaches confidence and that's something that teaches grit and perseverance. And we think about all these um, skills that we don't know how to create in our students and I think those skills are created by allowing somebody to push through the dark and push through a barrier that they didn't think was possible, sitting in front of the art for three hours, reading Dostoevsky, a book a week. Um, for me, it was a, another course in grad school that was, uh, it turned out to be a, a hundred page paper that I wrote for a law professor um, that, that was given, uh, given out to um, Mike Froman and some of the senior leadership in the State Department. Because my professor had been a two-time ambassador who, when I completed the project, said, this is more profound than anything any student's ever written for me. I'm giving you an A+, which I've given two times since 1957. And I'm sending this to, you know, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And so that, to me, was a paper that pushed me beyond a boundary of what I ever thought was possible. And that was something that changed the perspective of what it meant to work hard in a class. I'd never worked that hard but I'd also never achieved an outcome even remotely that interesting. And so it was something that fundamentally changed my perspective about academia and what could be possible by a professor pushing me to a different limit. Um, and so those are just some food for thought and some anecdotes. But I think that those are the experiences that teach grit and perseverance and uh, and skills that are lifelong.
0: We're coming up to the end, but I have one final question for you. I mean, I I'm going to advertise this podcast to... Um, I, I teach a first year experience course with with college freshmen. And I, I guess my question would be, what would you tell a college freshman right now right, as they have their the, um, you know, semesters ahead of them, the graduation and then moving into the workforce? What would you tell them to focus on the the most or or, you know, it doesn't have to be one. It could be. Three, But what, what, what would be the focal point for, for a college freshman to focus on right now, looking ahead into their their professional world?
2: I think it's to think uh, think about what you love to do. And if you don't know, then try a lot of things. And I think it's about getting a holistic, rather than picking something that you think is pragmatic or makes sense, use your educational years uh, to test what you love. And I think to go deep in a number of different areas. And so I think, don't be afraid to take that course in computer science or to take that course in chemistry or to take that literature class that pushes you. Um, And I think oftentimes we are protective of uh, our grades. And I think looking back on all of our academic careers, you know, grades are important of course, um, but what's really more important is you're educating yourself for your own future. And it's not important that you, if you did one thing you dislike, but you maintained a 4.0 GPA, you're on the path to rote and routine mediocrity. If you uh, push yourself with every ounce of your creativity to take things that push you in every different way, and you end up with a 3.0, you're a much, uh, much happier, readier person for the world. And so I think to not get hung up on the arbitrary perfection that we sort of um, espouse to be important, because I think all of us look back and you say, really what's most important, whether you want to go to grad school, you want to go to medicine, you want to go to law, you want to go to business, you want to go back to academia. What's most important is that you're somebody who's deeply curious and deeply authentic. And how do you communicate authenticity? It's by having a perspective that you've been somewhere, you believe something, you've you've read something. That it takes courage, um, and that authenticity is why people get hired for companies, um, not their GPA. It's 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 authenticity, it's experience, and it's uh, it's having the curiosity to ask questions. And so I think that would be my my biggest advice: is to challenge yourself and don't get hung up on some of the arbitrary. Um, aspects of perfection that we might've thought were important in middle school or high school in the routine kind of testing environment that we all have to go through the gauntlet, you know, to get to college and get to these places that we think we want to get to. And really the place you want to get to is happiness. And the place you want to get to is uh, self-worth and authenticity with whatever it is that you love. Um, GPA doesn't, doesn't matter.
0: Thank you. No, I'm definitely sharing with that with them. <laughs> Thank you. You're
1: welcome. Well, thanks so much um, to Scott Hartley for being so generous with his time, not with, just with us today. But when he visited Dixie State and, you know, far more important than that, um, the, the conversations that you started, um, your public lecture was attended by the president of the university, uh, professors from all the departments. It, it's really kind of created a stir here at a time when the things you're talking about are exactly what we need to be talking and thinking about as we transition to Utah Tech University. So just a wonderful um, Series of of talks and and um, sharing your ideas with us has just been great. So thank you so much for that.
2: Thank you both so much for having.
1: Okay, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, We will be doing our next episode. It will be dropping in April. And then I also wanted to say that Being Human UTU will be doing a podcast on Friday, July first, two thousand twenty-two, the first day of the existence of Utah Tech University. So. Be on the lookout for that. So thank you all for the conversation, and we'll see you next time.
0: This has been the Being Human UTU Podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UTU Podcast.